So, Mark. Yes. I feel like we should maybe talk about angels. Okay. I mean, you've heard them on high before, yes? I've heard of them. Maybe. You've harked them? <laughs> I've harked them a couple times. Yeah. What's weird is I feel like I'm always trying to hark an angel and they never <laughs> hark me back. I don't know what this means. I don't even know what hark means, honestly. I kind of get it from context clues, but I've never heard it in any place except harking angels. I think it just means like, hey, like, hark! The Herald Angels are singing! It's Herald Angel! <laughs> Herald Angel. My good chum. I mean, that's not my joke. That's from Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, I know. Still the definitive version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you're going to play that song, you need to end it by having a bunch of children shout, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown! Or you can just provide it yourself. Oh, Believe me, I do. When you sing it at church and then you loudly scream, Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown! I'm clearly into the season at this point. Yes, we're so Christmassy and I'm thinking about Christmas all the time. I mean, the weather actually is like finally getting cool, so I actually am starting to think about Christmas. Mostly cookies, but also Christmas. Yeah, and I mean, I don't even have Thanksgiving here to kind of break up the season. Oh, that's true. Christmas all year. Are you just going to, like, make a turkey and force people to eat it? Uh, Nick and I are trying to look on some American websites to see where you can buy Thanksgiving dinners in London. That seems like a good move. So we'll try and figure it out. Anyway, angels. Angels. Whom we have harked. They got wings. So are there any particular angels in pop culture or media that you have a special fondness for? Angels in media always fascinate me because I remember as a child in Sunday school being told very young that angels are not dead people, which is how they are often depicted in media. And so as a kid, I would see versions of dead people and I'd be like, what are you doing? That's not how angels work. You mean zombies with wings? (laughs) Essentially. It's like the spirit, not an angel. But I did always enjoy whenever cartoons have a dead person just kind of float up. Like Spongebob, more than once, I think, has shown flying away on wings with a harp. Yeah, I was going to say, they always have a harp in the comics, too. Yeah. In, like, cartoons. It's more of a liar, I'd say, though, because they're pretty small. I'd say you're a liar. (laughs) I am. I don't actually know what a liar is, really. I think it's just a little harp. That's what I think, but what if it's not? Uh, If you know what a liar is, please tweet at us. Hashtag liar liar harp on fire. Again, that is hashtag liar liar harp on fire to let us know what a liar is and why it's not a harp. And you get to choose which liar you spell it as. Maybe one of each, maybe both the same. Ooh, liar liar L-Y-R-E-L-I-A-R harps on fire. Perfect. That's actually, that's maybe one of our best I'd say it's right up there with nice skin. Yeah, it really fits, I'd say. It also fits that nice hashtag thing where you want it to be easy to replicate and spell correctly. You don't want these long, clunky hashtags that people get confused by. Oh, obviously not. In terms of actual angels, I find Touched by an Angel, a show I watched maybe twice as a child to be the definitive version of angels. That show is wild. (laughs) That show is unbelievable. The weird thing about me and Touched by an Angel is I've only seen one episode, and it's a weird one. Like, it's one that's outside the norm of the show. Because this episode of Touched by an Angel starts off with, I don't know any of the characters. I don't even know who's main cast. One woman is filling in as a substitute teacher for like a third grade class. Or maybe they're like seventh grade. And they had to put on a presentation, each of them, about one of their heroes. And this little kid gets up and does a presentation about his hero, John Wilkes Booth. (laughs) Oh no. And he's like, I want to be an assassin. Just like John Wilkes Booth. Assassins are awesome. And then she's like, you don't know what you're talking about. That the entire episode pretty much is a flashback to the days leading up to the Lincoln assassination. (laughs) What is happening? In which one lady angel is chatting with Lincoln and trying to help him, like, come to terms with, like, yes, Abraham Lincoln, I know you suffer from deep depression, but you actually did accomplish many great things and, like, people will appreciate you when you're gone. The other one... (laughs) is a male angel harassing John Wilkes Booth, trying to convince him that slavery is bad, the South was wrong in the Civil War, and John Wilkes Booth needs to chill out. There is a point in which they are at a bar, and John Wilkes Booth looks at him and goes, What state are you from? And the guy goes, I'd say I'm from a state of grace. Boo! The thing, it goes on and on, and eventually posits that John Wilkes Booth, he, like, runs away, he's on the run for 12 days, he gets shot by a Union soldier in a barn that's been set on fire. They set it on fire to try to get him to run out. He gets shot, they drag him out, and as he's dying, he just, like, lies there saying, like, useless, useless. Which a lot of people think is, like, oh, 
it didn't work. Like, he died and a bunch of people were mad at him instead of rallying the southern cause. Not in Touched by an Angel. In Touched by an Angel, that dude angel is with him for the entire time he's on the run. And is telling him, like, John Wilkes Booth, like, you can choose God and go to heaven at this point. And he's like, no, useless. Oh, God. Then it cut back to the present. It was set in D.C. Substitute teacher has taken the kid to the Lincoln Memorial. And that's when we learn this whole episode is about the Lewinsky scandal. Because the teacher is, like, talking to the kid. It's like, I know sometimes it's hard to believe in leaders. And it's like, wow, they do bad things. But, like, America is still good. That is insane. It's one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen in my life. And I've watched Geostorm twice. What a weird choice to address the Lewinsky scandal. Yeah. So that's my Touch by an Angel reference. I mean, thinking about TV, like, the other angels that are in my head, like, His Dark Materials is on HBO now, and I just keep thinking about the later books where they have all those weird angels. Yeah. Angels after 1990 are almost exclusively being deconstructed and usually turned very creepy. Or just deeply weird. Yeah. Like, Supernatural, they're... All suits, essentially, that are following the rules, and then also evil in Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. There's an evil angel. I feel like there's more evil angels in pop culture after 1990 than there are good ones. Or just depicted as bureaucrats. Yeah, the bureaucrat angel is a real thing. Yeah. I think we should go back to actual biblical angels where they have, like, ten heads and are on fire and are chimeras. I mean, that's, like, the weird angel... I feel like we are getting some, like, weird angels where people are like, what's happening? And the angels are like, <laughs> And we're like, oh, that yeah, sounds like a Christmas The way they're song. described in the Bible is, there's a reason that their first words are always, don't fear. It's because they're terrifying looking. <laughs> terrifying. Well, speaking of terrifying angels, I think we should start the episode about a movie with the least terrifying angel of all time. Yeah, but we do have angels that are, like, basically galaxies for a bit. <laughs> yeah, this movie... I'm very excited. Don't forget, this entire movie is a flashback. (laughs) Alright, let's start the episode. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast, and we, of course, are committed to examining the most pressing, urgent issue of our day. Like the Lewinsky scandal. Like the Lewinsky scandal. Like an assassination. So, number one, what did John Wilkes Booth mean when he said useless? (laughs) Number two, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. It is our mission. It was given to us by an angel, and we won't stop until we found a conclusive answer. This month, under the orders of our benefactor, Tony A. Anthony, we are focusing specifically on romance in Christmas movies to see how the holiday season affects the depictions that we're looking at. After, of course, a very new movie last week, we're going old school for Frank Capra's 1946 only kind of a Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. This is maybe one of the least Christmassy Christmas movies of all time. But it is, like, decidedly Christmas. Like, the last substantial chunk of it is Christmas. It's Christmas in the way Meet Me in St. Louis is a Christmas movie. I was about to make that comparison. Because, like, that is a movie that is also iconically Christmas in some meaningful ways, not least because it introduces Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. But it's also a Halloween movie, and also a trolley-clanging movie. That trolley be clanging. Hashtag that trolley be clanging. <laughs> Tweeted us your thoughts on the film Judy from this past fall with hashtag that trolley be clanging. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts. That movie was great, and I left the theater extremely depressed. And immediately started drinking and then questioned my choices. Like, don't do that, Mark. Like, if there's one thing that movie should teach you, it's that that's not the move. I know. I was not using the alcohol to cope. It was pre-existing plans, but it was definitely like I was sad when I was at the bar still. And I was like, I don't know if this is the right way to end the film, Judy. So, what's your history with It's a Wonderful Life? This was only the second time I'd seen it. Gasp! It was not a real Christmas staple in my family, by any means. I think I watched it first only a few years ago. I love this movie. It's really good. Yeah, it rules. Don't get me wrong, I really like this movie, but it's just not one I grew up with, for sure. I think I had it on VHS, and I'm sure that at least two or three times I watched it in its annual NBC Christmas Eve broadcast. Because that's when this movie becomes a real touchstone. When it came out, it was successful. It made $3.3 million, which in 1946 is solid. Like, it played pretty well relative to other movies that came out that year. But the movie was so massively expensive that it wound up being a failure for Liberty Films. And it didn't really become 
this meaningful cultural touchstone until the 1970s when NBC started airing it every Christmas, basically because it fell into weird copyright territory. That sounds like the 70s in TV. Yeah, so what happened was Liberty Films, which was a production company founded by Frank Capra, who directed this movie, along with William Wyler and George Stevens, and they brought in Samuel Briskin to manage it. He had previously run Columbia, Paramount, and RKO, and it was the first attempt since United Artists to make an artist-driven independent studio. And they signed a distribution deal with RKO to make nine movies. So Capra would make three, Weiler would make three, and Stevens would make three, and then RKO would distribute them. Then It's a Wonderful Life was very expensive and did not make a lot of money, and so Liberty Films folded after its first movie. Oh, boy. So it got bought by Paramount, and... Paramount neglected to renew the copyright on the movie. So in the 70s, it went into the public domain, and NBC was like, cool, we're going to start airing this every year. This, like, leads to a weird Wild West this movie while it's in the public domain. For example, this was the first movie to be released on CD-ROM. That doesn't sound like a thing. So yeah, so you could buy a, a CD of It's a Wonderful Life, plug it into your computer, and then watch it, and it wasn't a very high-quality <laughs> picture. <laughs> I assume but they did like incorporate some cool technology where like on the screen you could be following along with the shooting script as the movie played like they did some cool stuff with special features that frankly sound more interesting than a lot of early dvd special features early dvd special features were extremely weird i just very distinctly remember the harry potter and the sorcerer's stone dvd which i did not have because my family had it on vhs had a game where you were ostensibly a student at hogwarts and the remote was your wand but that basically just meant it was a very clunky point-and-click game. I think I played that, and it was kind of fun, though. Well, sure, we were all excited because we were Harry Potter. Yeah, and you could interact with the film. So, anyway, the movie then left the public domain because Paramount owned the rights to the story that the movie was based on, and they successfully argued that It's a Wonderful Life was a derivative work and therefore included in their copyright. Isn't it just, like, a short story that it's based on? Yeah, it's based on a short story called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern, who was mostly a Civil War historian, and he self-published it as a booklet and just, like, gave it to his friends, like, with his Christmas card in December of 1943. I honestly would probably hate that. <laughs> so the story itself is basically just the I wish I'd never been born sequence, minus, like, the detail of Pottersville. It's just about, like, the character's George Pratt in this. He's gone to the bridge to commit suicide, and a mysterious person called The Stranger shows up. I'm assuming it's the guy from the Camus novel. Yes. And is like, okay, fine, George, you've never been born. And he just, like, goes around and sees how he touched all of his friends' lives. There's not the thing about, like, your town is also now a disaster. That is the most famous part of this movie, so it makes sense. But at the same time, that is the last 20 minutes of this movie. Which is weird, because that's what people associate with the movie. Yeah. But in the story, uh, like I said, it's called The Greatest Gift. The ending is like, George, like, things may not seem amazing, but you have the greatest gift, which is life. And so he, like, gave it out as his, like, Christmas card, basically. Then Cary Grant somehow got his hands on it and really liked it, and he wanted to play George. So RKO bought the rights to the story for $10,000 in April of 1944. A few different writers took passes on it. They eventually sold the rights to Capra, again for $10,000. And it's not until December of 44 that the story actually gets, like, published in a book. But it gets sold from RKO to Capra, and RKO is like, cool, this is going to be one of the nine movies that Liberty Films makes for us. And even if it failed, it brought us the greatest gift. This movie. Ah, I mean, to be fair, like I said, the movie didn't make a ton of money, but it was well-received. It was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for Frank Capra, Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart, Best Editing, and Best Sound Recording. And it didn't win any of those. It mostly got swept by The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a very good movie about soldiers coming back from World War II. Although Capra did win the Golden Globe for Best Director. It's a Wonderful Life did win a special Oscar, a special achievement one, because in the scenes around Christmas where there's the snow around, Russell Shearman, their special effects director, invented a new kind of fake snow using soap flakes for this movie. Because previously, movies had used cornflake snow, which was so loud that all dialogue in snow scenes had to be redubbed afterwards. Don't forget, also, asbestos, like in The Wizard of Oz. Sure, yeah. So this was like a big deal, and they gave him a special Oscar for it. Yeah, good for him. 
And I think Soap Flakes is the one that I associate most with fake movie snow. Yeah, and it's because of this movie and Russell Shearman. So the story rights go to Capra at Liberty Films, and they've got a couple of different versions of it. There's actually one by Dalton Trumbo in which George, instead of like running a building alone, was a politician who grows progressively more cynical over the course of his career and tries to commit suicide after losing an election. And so then the stranger shows him Bedford Falls as it would look if he had gone into business instead of politics. And it's like, see, George, you may have lost this election, but you really did make things better. That sounds also like a good movie. Yeah, it, but it's a different a movie. Darker. Yeah, a bit darker, less Christmassy. Definitely less Christmassy. For starters, it would be set in November. So Capra gets a writing team. He like brings in a bunch of writers, including Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, Frank Capra, Joe Swirling. Actually, Dorothy Parker does punch up on one version of the script. And ultimately, credit for the movie goes to written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra with additional scenes by Joe Swirling. This was all, as I'm sure you can imagine, very controversial. I, yes. (laughs) It sounds complicated, to say the least. So Goodrich and Hackett were a married couple. We've actually talked about them before because they got an Oscar nomination for writing The Thin Man. And after this, they'd win a Pulitzer for writing the stage version of The Diary of Anne Frank. Okay. Pretty impressive people. Right. They largely did their draft of this movie alone, and they were annoyed with Capra because they felt like he rushed them along so that he could do his pass and just, like, throw their work out. Capra mostly worked with Joe Swirling, but then in the WGA arbitrations, Swirling didn't get a full credit, and he stopped speaking to Capra, who he felt was just, like, trying to take all the credit for the movie. These WGA negotiations sound like hell yeah they sound awful for those of you who don't know lots of writers work on most movies they'll take a pass on writing a new draft of a script or just doing punch up on certain scenes or in comedies you often have people come in to spice up the jokes and then everybody who was involved in writing it makes their case to the writers guild of america on like here's what i did and the wga then has to determine whose contributions were significant enough to receive a writing credit and they can be quite contentious Because that can play a big role in what kind of residuals that you get based on people renting a movie or it being shown on airplanes or things like that. Except in animated films, they can have additional writing credit section. Yes. Which is also very weird that it exists in animated films only and not in other types of movies. Which I suspect has something to do with historically not taking animation as seriously as live action film. Oh, I can guarantee that. Animated films are just so underappreciated. They are. I'm sure somewhere there's been an animated adaptation of this story. (laughs) It would probably be so weird, too. Just that, like, bare bones, like, I wish I'd never been born, and then you see what it would look like. That's been done a jillion times. There's a Rugrats episode with it. So there you go. There's the animated one. Which is very dark, considering they're babies. I mean, Rugrats is kind of dark to begin with. Yeah. That show is very weird. Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life was adapted to radio four times between 47 and 51. Jimmy Stewart was in all four of them because this was the period where actors went back and forth between radio and film. In 1977, when it was in the public domain, ABC made a gender-swapped version of it called It Happened One Christmas, featuring Orson Welles as Mr. Potter and Cloris Leachman as the angel Clara. That sounds fun. I've heard it's fine, but not amazing. Ugh, that's a shame. I wish it was either... Good or, like, a camp classic of terribleness. I mean, it is late career Orson Welles, so that's kind of baked into it. Yeah, there is an inherent element of that within it. So, we just mentioned Jimmy Stewart, who, of course, plays the lead of this movie. This is his third collaboration with Frank Capra after You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And more notably, this is Jimmy Stewart's first movie he made after World War II. It's also Frank Capra's first movie after World War II, which I think is significant. Because both of them quit the film industry to enlist in the army. Capra did so, like, as a filmmaker. He very famously directed the Why We Fight propaganda films during the war, which are very good. Have you ever seen those? No, I haven't. They might be on Netflix. They're definitely on YouTube. And... Again, it's like World War II propaganda, but it is a really good microcosm of how the United States viewed itself during the war. Propaganda is bad for the most part, but it is a very interesting look at a country's self-perception, always. And World War II in the film industry is particularly interesting because that's really the one conflict in which the entire industry mobilized behind a national endeavor like that. And it is probably going to be the only time 
I suspect so. Which takes me to Jimmy Stewart, who enlisted in the Air Corps in March 1941, so nine months before Pearl Harbor. He came from a military family, so he grew up around like, yes, the military, let's go, and had himself spent a bunch of time flying planes. So when he enlisted, he mostly did work training pilots. But he really didn't want to be like, oh, he's a famous person, so he won't go into combat. He spent months flying combat missions. He was a colonel by the end of the war, having enlisted as a private just before it started. And he actually stayed in the military until 1968, working with the Strategic Air Command. Yeah, he's extremely military. I was doing a bit of reading about him. Which I had no idea. It's kind of fascinating because, like, Capra and Jimmy Stewart's very good friend Henry Fonda were, like, super liberal. But Jimmy Stewart is very much what we would stereotype a military person today, where he's, like, very conservative. He supported HUAC, the Vietnam War, Barry Goldwater, Reagan 76. Like, Stewart was... Yeah, like, all the worst things. Very conservative. Yeah, very gross things. So it's weird that he and Capra both are involved in this movie, which was investigated by the FBI for being communist. Yeah, I read that. There's like an FBI report that basically says by depicting Potter as an evil person, they're condemning banks. And I'm like, yeah, they are. So this movie is socialist. Yeah, because the FBI report goes on and on about how, like, this is a classic communist strategy to make people hate bankers. And it's like, this is less than 20 years after the Great Depression. Yeah, these are people that lived through- They remember the horrible bankers. (laughs) Yeah, they were in these bank runs that happened in the movie. That said, both- Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra said this was their favorite movie that they ever made. Capra said he showed it to his family every Christmas. That's very cute. This is a very good movie, so it makes sense. Yeah, it's a great movie. I will say, the non-Jimmy Stewart world is a little far-fetched, in my opinion. (laughs) That this one man is what was standing between this town and becoming a hotbed of sin, thriving metropolis. The one reason that I kind of buy it is because there's the point after Peter Bailey dies when everybody is like ready to go like, yep, sure, we'll uh, close down the building and loan and let Mr. Potter take over everything that's going on in town. And it is just George Bailey and that speech that he gives to the board that convinces them to keep the building and loan open. And then we spend like the next hour of the movie seeing how the building and loan changes people's lives and like changes the community. So if George isn't there, when Peter Bailey dies, the thing closes down. I kind of buy it and the movie does a good job, but it also seems like Bedford Falls becomes Las Vegas in terms of size and scale. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. And also, Mary somehow loses her eyesight without George Bailey alive because she has glasses in the world where he isn't born but doesn't in the world where he is. Maybe George is just like a fiend for carrots and made her eat them all the time and it kept her eyesight up. Yeah, but that also is a myth, so it clearly isn't that. I think it's... Yeah, but in the 40s, they would have believed that. The idea that a woman is unmarried at the ripe old age of 28 means she is actually dying. Like, her body is falling apart. Yeah. Next thing you know she'll have the gout yeah also jimmy stewart's playing 28 year old in this movie and at one point is 18 year old (laughs) i just need to take a moment and he was not the most believable recent high school graduate he's got a lot of energy that i believe like if he were not as like high strung as he is in the movie it would be harder to believe that said part of the reason that he's high strung is that Jimmy Stewart, by the end of the war, was suffering from fairly serious PTSD. Yeah, it's more the whole, like, craggy face thing that is kind of standing in between the true plausibility. Which is kind of a problem when he's at Harry's graduation party at the gym. I like it later in the movie because we can see on George's face, like, the toll that the difference between what he wanted for his life and what it is has kind of taken on him. Yeah, by 28, he is kind of a rundown man already because he's just had to sacrifice so much. And that's the thing is this is a movie about somebody who keeps having to choose to do what he thinks is right over what he would like to do for himself. Yeah, it's a really nice message. And... You know, very happy ending, as we all, I'm sure, are aware, even those who haven't seen the movie. Yeah, it's about a community that comes together to help one another. Right. And that's what The Building and Loan was always about, too. And George keeps having to remind himself that. I think Jimmy Stewart, I looked it up, was like 38 when they made this movie and had just been through World War II. And he actually contemplated quitting acting. He was like, this is all kind of pointless. Like, what are we doing? And there's a story that while they were on set, He was talking about this, like, yeah, this is all a waste of time. Like, what are we even doing? And Lionel Barrymore, who played Mr. Potter, said to him, like, oh, so it's more important to drop bombs on people than to make them feel happy? (laughs) And Jimmy Stewart was like, all right, fine, (laughs) you got a point. Good for him. (laughs) Yeah, Lionel Barrymore, prior to playing Mr. Potter, became famous for playing Ebenezer Scrooge in radio plays. That tracks. (laughs) 
He's got that yeah, voice. It fits very neatly. Yeah, Mr. Potter is just the Scrooge that never learns his lesson. Yeah. Barrymore had also been in Capra movies before. He and Stuart were both in You Can't Take It With You, as was Gene Arthur, who plays Mary Bailey. As, of course, was Jimmy the Raven, the best actor in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I looked up Jimmy the Raven, who has a Wikipedia page. Oh, did you? Because he yeah, rules. He is great. Jimmy the Raven has been in over a thousand movies. He lived twice as long as the average lifespan for a raven in captivity. Yeah, most ravens live to be 30. He lived to be 60. MGM had him insured for $10,000 because he could type, open letters, and respond to hundreds of distinct words. He also got a Red Cross medal for entertaining World War II veterans. What a bird. Also, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out like some MGM file they find somewhere that there were ten Jimmy the Ravens and that Absolutely not. I would they were just replacing that. it with other trained Ravens but wanted the fame. We had that weird animated movie that nobody saw about Sergeant Stubby a couple years ago. The dog in World War One who was also for a while a mascot at Georgetown University. Oh, right. We need an animated movie about Jimmy the Raven. Or we need a really intense takedown of the Hollywood studio system through the eyes of Jimmy the Raven. Ooh, who plays Jimmy the Raven in this? Um, Like, if it's like a dog's purpose style thing where we need someone to narrate the thoughts of Jimmy the Raven, who is it? Well, Daniel Kaluuya's taken up in the new movie version of Barney, so it can't be him. It's not clear that he's in that. He's definitely producing it. No, I think it it said he's in it, but he's not playing Barney. I think he's playing... Who's the Triceratops? Who knows? Isn't her name, like, Trudy or something? Who knows? They could be Snuffleupagus. That's Sesame Street. I know. Um, is it hacky to say Gilbert Gottfried should play Jimmy the Raven? I think Danny DeVito should be Jimmy the Raven. I picked Danny DeVito for everything, and I was trying <laughs> I to branch out. Danny DeVito is the perfect casting for every role. What if we went, like, hard in the other direction, and we had, like... Like, the energy that Leonardo DiCaprio is bringing to movies these days... But as Jimmy the Raven. Or just something super... Who has the most soothing voice in Hollywood? Like Jim Dale, reader of the Harry Potter audiobooks. Sure. Or Julianne Moore doing her Boston accent. (laughs) It's so bad. It's so good. I'm Nancy Donovan. (laughs) Nancy Donovan. Uh, I love Julianne Moore. Let us know your thoughts for Jimmy the Raven by tweeting at us, Who's Jimmy? Cacaw! That's the (laughs) hashtag. Who's Jim? Hashtag who's Jimmy? Cacaw. <laughs> this episode has given us maybe our worst and our definite best hashtags. Hashtag liar liar harps on fire. Hashtag who's Jimmy? Cacaw. <laughs> we haven't recorded yeah. in a while. Should we start talking about the romance? Let's do it. I've got more to talk about, but we'll get to it as we move through the All movie. All right. So every week we break down the romantic plot lines of the movie we're discussing into five points that help us summarize that romantic arc. Because, of course, we would never talk about anything in a movie that's not related to the romance. Exactly. We're only, what, 40 minutes in? Who knows? And we have only talked about Uh, romance. Exactly. So because I love this movie so dearly, like I remember sitting some of my friends down in college and being like, we have to watch this movie. And they were like, what is this? And I'd be like, it's a great movie. And they would go, is that a Mammy character? And I'd be like, yes, but we're moving past it. Oh, Annie. Oh, Annie. She does have maybe my favorite line in the movie, which is when she gives her money at the end, she says, I've been saving this money for a divorce in case I ever get married. She's kind of (laughs) great. She's really funny. But it's just unfortunate that there's a mammy, as always. Yeah. So, because I love this movie, I'm going to take us through these points. And we have to start, not quite at the beginning of the movie, because, as we said, this movie is almost entirely flashback. It starts with, literally starts with some galaxies talking to each other. And these galaxies are God and St. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus's two dads hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> And then a tiny star named Clarence. Yeah, and they're like, Clarence, you gotta go down and help George Bailey. And Clarence is like, who's George Bailey? And they're like, give us an hour and a half and we'll tell you. So we cut back to George Bailey. He's a nice little kid. He destroyed one of his ears, saving his brother Harry when he fell into some ice. After sledding on a shovel. That's right. Don't sled on shovels, kids. Sled on the bones of your enemies. It's also 1912, and nothing is done in any scene in this movie to indicate the actual decade that it's happening in. I mean, the stock market crashes. I just mean in terms of aesthetics. Like, at the dance, they're dancing to Charleston, but no one is dressed like the 20s, and no one has any vibe of the 20s. It's just extremely 40s still. Yeah, that's true. So, our romance really starts, point number one is the early flirtation between George Bailey and Mary Hatch. 
Is this the year you can't hear on? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. And I suppose also Violet. Oh, Violet. She's a star. This is George Bailey, played, of course, by Jimmy Stewart, and Mary Hatch, played by Donna Reed, who had been Stewart's romantic opposite in two previous Frank Capra movies. Capra doesn't sound like he likes to branch out too much in this casting. He likes to use the same kind of people. I mean, Stewart had, like, previously won Oscars for Capra movies, so he's happy to yeah, work with him. makes sense. No, he actually didn't win for a Capra movie. He was nominated for Mr. Smith, but he won for the Philadelphia story. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was Which nominated. Is not Capra. Right, he's nominated five times for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Philadelphia Story, It's a Wonderful Life, Harvey, and Anatomy of a Murder, but he only won for Philadelphia Story. Now, okay. Now, your girl Violet was played by Gloria Graham, who sort of most notably also featured in movies like Sudden Fear, Human Desire, and she played Ado Annie in the movie version of Oklahoma, which is probably where most people have seen her besides this. I think this is probably her most famous role, though. Yeah, I, or maybe Ado Annie. A lot of people saw yeah. Oklahoma. That's true. That movie was a massive hit. So, anyway, George is a kid, and he works at the drugstore, slinging drugs. Well, mostly slinging soda pop. That's right. And shoelaces. <laughs> and shoelaces. So, George walks in, hits the thing, says he wishes he had a million dollars, and Mary is sitting at the counter. Just like, little kid, sitting at the counter. And then Violet walks in, little blonde kid. Yeah, she's like eight, and she's super flirty. She knows exactly who she is and what she wants. Yeah, she's there to get it. And it's Shoelaces and Jimmy Stewart. Well, the child actor who's playing the same character as Jimmy Stewart. And Violet's like, I like him. And Mary goes, you like every boy. Meanwhile, George then is talking about how he wants to travel all over the world. He's like, yeah, I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. I think this kid is supposed to be like 12, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's very weird, but you do kind of get the sense of, like, a kid in this period reading adventure novels and picking up words and not really understanding their implications. Yeah, he definitely saw, like, Baghdad Nights or something with a really awkward depiction of gender relations. What, you think that some of the movies or stories that George Bailey would have been reading in the 19-teens would have awkward racial and gender politics? I know, it's a bold claim that I am making. But the thing is, what we're getting here is, from a pretty young age, George Bailey wants to get out of Bedford Falls and see the world. He has no intention of staying in Bedford Falls. No, he really wants to go to Greece and Italy, most of all, to see the Parthenon and the Colosseum. Yeah. Uh, fun side note on Bedford Falls. All of the real places that they mention in this movie are like Rochester, New York, places like that. So you could assume that Bedford Falls is kind of in that ballpark. The town of Seneca Falls, New York, claims that they are the basis for Bedford Falls, to the point that they host an It's a Wonderful Life festival every year, and there is a Hotel Clarence, there's an It's a Wonderful Life museum, there is no evidence in Capra's writing that he used Seneca Falls as an inspiration, and he actually pointedly describes repeatedly that he was just trying to get, like, a generic small town. Yeah, you get the feel that it's in New York based on the geography they talk about, but when they show signs of Bailey Park, it looks basically like the exact same place that Arrested Development will use to film there. Well, I mean, they did build a town out in the hills of California. Yeah, so the geography does not match up, but the vibe of the town kind of matches with New York. I always do like that little aspect of the building and loan getting directly involved in the construction of homes for people because it means that George gets to use some of those architecture skills that he had wanted to hone at college. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he's not designing all the buildings himself because he's not a trained architect and they probably wouldn't be structurally sound. I mean, it's the 1920s. Like, you could probably read a book and they're like, sure, have a license. <laughs> yeah. Things were not necessarily well regulated back then. None of those houses fall down in the movie. <laughs> wow, what a great bar. <laughs> What no, the bar is Martini's. Bar. Martini's bar. Yeah, also, the depiction of Italians in this movie is not too kind. It's not dreadful, though. Like, the Italians in the movie are fundamentally good people and a nice family, which you could not necessarily take for granted. No, that is fair. But there's also, like, 40 of them that all live together. Yes, that is true. I like when we get to see them at work, though, at the bar. Yeah. All right, so point number one. Yeah, we're still at point number one. So Violet's in love with George. She likes every boy, but she likes George. That's kind of all we see with them as little kids. George is going to have a couple of harems and three or four wives. We jump to later in time, 
No. Sorry? You forgot the most important part of that scene. Oh, what did I forget? George bends over to pick something up, and Mary leans over and whispers in his ear that he can't hear, George Bailey, I'll love you forever. So, also, Mary clearly has a crush on George. Mary's got a huge crush on George, and it's obvious that, like, she's kind of defensive when Violet's like, I like him. Mary's like, shut up! Go hit on all the boys that you like. (laughs) Yeah, go talk to any other boy. Mary is, like, marking out her territory early. So, now we cut to... Many years later, George has been working at the building alone, and he is hoping to go off to college. He wants to study architecture and shake the dust of Bedford Falls off his feet, get somewhere else. And George is, like, walking around. Violet flirts with him in the street some, but eventually he decides that he is going to go to his brother Harry's high school graduation. So, I think... He graduated, like, four years before his brother, but he's been working to save up for college at the building and loan. Right. So he's still, like, around town. Right. And his intention is that he or Harry will go off to college while the other one works, and they'll trade off that opportunity. So the plan is that George is going to go off to college now that Harry's graduated high school. Harry will work at the building and loan. Harry's a football star. He's really well-liked. Isn't it great that George saved his life? At the graduation dance, which is in the gym, also all the teachers are there, also everyone is drinking. Just open bowls of gin everywhere. Well, the drinking age would have been 18. Still, open bowls of gin everywhere. Yep, just bowls of gin. Wouldn't this be during Prohibition? Yes. Indeed, it would have been. What the heck is happening in Bedford Falls? (laughs) 1928. I'm telling you, they made no effort to make it actually set in the 20s. So, Mary's brother gets George to dance with Mary. He's like, go rescue Mary from her date. Mary's talking to Sam Wainwright, and Sam is just talking her ear off. But George butts in and starts dancing with her and is having a great time. So, he walks up, and as... Sam Wainwright is talking. Mary is giving the most intense bedroom eyes to George Bailey, and they're and just pointedly not listening to a word of what Sam is saying. Yeah, just standing there staring at each other. Sam doesn't notice at all until he says, "Mind if I have this dance?" And Sam's like, "That's my girl. What are you doing?" So then Sam goes off and he flips the switch to open the basketball court that the dance is happening on, where there is a full swimming pool beneath it. Apparently, that was still in use uh, according to wikipedia at least until 2013 if not now yeah at beverly hills high school yeah so they fall into the pool everybody's having a great time people start jumping in including the teachers yeah because they're all drunk because they're just giant bowls of gin do you think the pool is full of gin probably this doesn't seem like the driest town it's the roaring 20s mark this town was really primed to become pottersville yeah it is not you know Using its money wisely, it seems. No. Just filling bathtub, er, bathtubs, pools, bowls, anything they can with gin in it. So, after the dance, George is walking Mary home. She's wearing a bathrobe and a, maybe nothing underneath it, or also maybe a lot of clothes, and it's the 20s, so it's just not enough a lot of clothes for her to feel comfortable. Um, They're walking home, and George is like, you know, if it wasn't me, I'd say you were the pretty... Excuse me. You know, if it wasn't me, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town. What do you want, Mary? You want the moon? Well, just give me a lasso and I'll get it for you. The biggest joke about this movie that is by far the truest is how often he says Mary. Yeah. He says Mary Mary. a lot in this movie. Mary! Mary, why do we have all these kids? Mary, do you want the moon? Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Or he just runs through the street yelling Mary Mary, repeatedly. It's a vowel sound so perfectly suited to Jimmy Stewart's voice. Definitely. So they go, they're hanging out. They walk outside this big old house, and George is like, this place is creepy as all get out. And Mary's like, no, I think it's pretty. And he's like, you're a crazy lady. Here, let's throw rocks through the windows and make wishes. And he throws a rock through the window, you hear a crash. And he's like, I wish I could get out of this town and travel everywhere and see the world. And then Mary, who had been reluctant to break her window, picks up a rock and throws it through the window and refuses to tell George what it's about. Until later in the movie. That's right. They keep, like, chatting and going around. And finally, the dude on the porch, who's been watching them hang out just like you know a neighbor sitting outside one night shouts at george to stop talking and kiss her already i kind of like the idea of this dude who's just like sitting here and it's before tv is invented so his entertainment is just to watch and comment on what's happening like he's gonna grow up to yell at the news when tv exists but for for now he just yells at people in the street for not being entertaining enough also you watch the scene and you're like they need to kiss i'm on this guy's side oh he's totally right yeah so then he tries to kiss her, but she has somehow slipped out of her robe and jumped into the hydrangea bush. Well, she runs away from 
the se- something i don't know i think because he's gonna kiss her oh okay. she gets freaked out by that but he was accidentally standing on the string of her bathrobe so when she like leapt away the bathrobe didn't come with her so she's now maybe naked in the bush yes and i don't think those were hydrangeas no. but she calls them hydrangeas now this is a very interesting situation yeah this is creepy it is i don't ever have the feeling that george is going to do something no but it is still not an amazing thing to do no it is definitely kind of weird and definitely would seem flirty in the 40s, but a lot of things that are weird seemed flirty in the 40s. Yeah, so he does not give her the robe for a while. He's like, you know, I could sell tickets to this. And he's just like giving her a hard time. But then a car pulls up and it's his brother Harry and of course the cabbie Ernie and Uncle Billy. And they tell him that his father has had a stroke and he needs to go now. So, unfortunately, Peter Bailey has passed away from a stroke. Which means that then Mr. Potter, the wealthiest man in town, wants to shut down the building and loan and just have everybody keep their money with him. He is famously very stingy. He also owns a lot of crappy housing in town, so he doesn't want the building and loan helping people like build nice houses. Right, he rents slums to people and charges high rent, so the building and loan is there to let people afford to buy a house for the same price as renting a slum apartment. So Potter tries to get it shut down. Pretty much everybody is like, well, George, you're going off to college, so nobody's going to run this thing, so like, bye-bye, we're shutting down the building and loan. George gives him a whole speech about how they need to keep it open, and the board agrees to on the condition that George stay and run it. So he does decide to stay and run it. Which is yet another time we're seeing George have these dreams, and first he sets them aside because he's got to save money for college, working at the building and loan. Then he's waiting for Harry to graduate high school. Then his dad gets a stroke. And then it's three months before that meeting when he is told, like, basically, you've got to take over the building and loan. And so it's just like each time that George thinks he's going to be done and get to move on, he discovers that it's not the case. And this kind of brings us to point number two. Yeah, he always has a ticket in hand when these things happen. Sometimes literally. Yeah, he has his train booked to leave for Europe when the stroke happens. And Mr. Gower who ran the drugstore had bought him like a nice large suitcase. Uh, Mr. Gower. Mr. Gower. So Mr. Gower, the actor who played him, one time he was supposed to do this scene where he hits young George in George's bad ear. And obviously it's like acting, so he's supposed to like not really hit him, but he messed up and he actually hit him really hard. Oh no, that poor child. Yeah, which is similar to something that happened one time when I was in college. I was running a rehearsal for a one night comedy thing and I was showing some younger actors how to do a stage punch and I messed up and accidentally punched my friend in the face. Oh God, I don't even know if I heard about this. Yeah, I punched Zoe in the face one time. (laughs) Will, oh my God. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) Anyway, so this brings us to point number two. Now, point three, right? Point two is the party, according to this list. This is a different party. Oh, right. That was the graduation party. party. Right. Yes. So between points one and point two, World War II happens. Yes. And Harry goes off to war and becomes a big war hero. He's a flying ace. He shoots down a bunch of planes. Mr. Potter runs the draft board. George is like a signalman. He's doing all kinds of jobs around town and still running the building alone. Right. Because he is deaf in one ear, so he couldn't be drafted. Right. He was a 4F. Just like Captain America. And just like Captain America, he still did a lot. Have you seen the first Captain America? Nope. There's a terrific montage where he's just like doing uso tours because they won't let him serve because they're like he's just a weird science experiment and it's kind of amazing at one point he lifts a motorcycle with like a uso girl on it that sounds exactly like something that would happen during world war ii uso tours yeah so captain america the first avenger great movie anyway harry at the end of the war is decorated by president truman he's getting the congressional medal of honor and bedford falls is preparing to throw a huge celebration when he returns Have you made up your mind? About what? About coming in. Your mother just phoned and said you were on your way over to pay me a visit. My mother just called you? Well, how'd she know? Didn't you tell her? I didn't tell anybody. I just went for a walk. Happened to be passing by here. And everybody's really excited. Harry gets off the train, and we discover that he has gotten married without telling anybody, because that was the thing that happened in the 40s. Yep. You just, like, probably knew each other for two weeks. Yeah, you just meet somebody and you're like, hey, you're swell, why don't we get married? I thought this was him coming back from college. Because the disaster day is him coming back from the war. So Harry's coming back from college because he goes to college 
and then is going to take over the business when he gets back from college. Right, because then when he gets off, his new bride is like, yeah, I was a package deal because Harry got me and he got a job through my dad. And George is like, excuse me? Yeah. If Harry doesn't take over the building and loan, I can't leave. And then Harry says, oh, don't worry, I haven't actually taken the job yet. So I'm planning to work at the building and loan. But George talks to his sister-in-law and she says, oh, it's not super well paying, but it's great opportunity for advancement. Basically implying that he could run the place someday. And George is like, Harry, I can't get in your way. You should take this job. Right. Another moment where George puts others before himself, but feels terrible about it. Right. So that night, there's a big graduation party for Harry. George and Uncle Billy have a nice chat. Uncle Billy's very drunk. He wanders off the scene. The real actor playing Uncle Billy also wandered off set and crashed into a bunch of sound equipment and shouted, I'm okay. And Frank Capra liked it so much that he added a bunch more sound effects and kept it in the movie. (laughs) Oh my god. That is perfect. Yeah. So after that, Mrs. Bailey comes out and is like, you know, George, uh, Mary Hatch is back in town. And George is like, so what? And she's like, Mary Hatch is back in town. You should call her. Mary could uh, help you find yourself. And George is like, nah, bro code. Someone has called dibs on Mary, even though she clearly likes me more. He's like, yeah, she's going out with Sam Wainwright. You do get a sense that, like, they have been, like, going out some, but Mary clearly doesn't see it as locked in. Yeah. So Mrs. Bailey is basically like, Sam Wainwright ain't here. Go see Mary. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Bailey is a true hero. Yeah. So George is walking over to Mary's house, and he runs into our girl Violet. and. Violet's like, where are you going, George? And he's like, you and me, let's get out of here. Let's, like, run up to the mountain. Like, there's a cool pool. We can take off our feet, go around, look at the stars, have a great time. And Violet is like, that is not at all what I meant by having a good time. (laughs) Yeah, she is shocked at the idea of taking off her shoes. And just, like, when she's like, you know, George, let's let's go have some fun. She's like, I did not mean running through the wilderness. (laughs) Yes, this is not what I had in mind. He's saying it very loudly so all the townspeople just laugh at him. Yeah. And I think that's what puts him in a really terrible mood by the time he gets to Mary's house. Right. He's like, Harry's going off and not going to run the building alone for me. Nobody, like, takes what I want seriously, and it seems like I can't get what I want. I'm so he arrives trapped at Mary's here. incredibly grumpy and is pretty rude to her. Yeah. They have the whole 40s angry man shaking a woman and then kissing her thing, which is one of my biggest pet peeves in movies. I hate it every time. It always it's makes a me weird uncomfortable. Trend. It's weird that it happens a lot. Yeah, it's a tr- like. It's weird that it is a trope that a lot of first kisses happen after the man has angrily shaken the woman using his height to intimidate her. And Mary is clearly really excited to see him. Like we see that she has drawn a really nice like cartoon of like George lassoing the moon. Right. Based I on thought his it was offer. Gonna, I thought it was going to be like a children's book that she wrote. That would be cool. She also, when he's coming in, she puts on a record of Buffalo Gals. Which is the song they were singing on their way home from the pool. And George comes in and is immediately, like, kind of a jerk. She's like, why did you come here? He's like, I don't know. Why does everybody know that I'm coming over here? She's like, well, your mom called. And he's like, well, why does everybody know that I'm coming over here? Yeah, he's just being a big old butt. Yeah, he's a poopy head. And so he angrily leaves. The entire time that he's there, Mary's mom is calling down being like, Sam Wainwright's calling you. Sam Wainwright's calling you. Make sure there's nobody around when Sam Wainwright calls you from New York. It's like meet me in St. Louis. Yes. New York is much closer. Yeah. They don't seem as stressed about the long distance calls from New York. No. Nor is it happening during dinner time. Yeah. Nor is it 1904. I think there's been a lot of phone technology updates since 1904 to 1928. I would hope so. So George leaves and then he comes back in because I forgot my hat. And that's when Sam calls. And Mary picks up the phone, and Sam Wainwright figures out that George is there. He's like, well, put George on the phone. I want to talk to him. Hee-haw. Hee-haw. And Sam is like, well, I'm building a a plastics factory, making plastics out of soybeans. And George, I want you in on it. George convinces him to build it in Bedford Falls instead of in Rochester. (laughs) None of that is followed up on. No, we find out that Sam Wainwright does become fabulously wealthy. And he had asked George to invest in the company, and George did not, because George doesn't have a lot of money. And Sam Wainwright makes a comment later about, like, yeah, like, if George had come to work for me, he could be fabulously wealthy now. Yeah, but they never talk about it actually opening in Bedford Falls or people getting jobs. No, but we do have a sense, I think, through the building and loan that people in general are doing pretty well. Yes. Which I always assume is as a result of jobs in the plastics factory. 
Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, by the time the phone call has ended, George and Mary are wrapped around each other, and they start to make out. And then it basically cuts to their wedding. It immediately cuts to their wedding. Yeah, it's like they kissed once, so now they're married. Of course, that's how it works. Marry? And that's our point number three, is their wedding day. Remember the night we broke through windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. George is really excited. He's gotten married. He also is going to be going on an adventure around the world with his wife. They saved up $2,000 for their around-the-world honeymoon, which is a That's what that shit- costs, right? That, that was a shit ton of money. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, that's $39,000 in today's money. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is 1928, so $2,000 is a lot. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And they're all set to go, and they're in the cab driven by Ernie the cab driver. And then it just happens to be Black Friday. Yeah, they drive past a bank run, and George is like, well, literally every time, every time I try to go somewhere. (laughs) So instead of going on their honeymoon, Mary gives him the idea to fund the bank during the bank run by giving out their honeymoon funding. Your money isn't here. Your money is is in Peter's house. It's in Frank's house, and you'll get it back. Tom's a dick. Tom's a huge dick. Uh, yeah, he would be willing to let the building and loan, and therefore lots of people go under in order for him to have his $242. Whereas every other person is like, I'll just take 20 to tide me over for 60 days. Until the bank reopens. Right. Which, <laughs> again, $20 at that time was enough to tide you over for 60 days. I know. Yeah. <laughs> or seventeen fifty, and then you get a kiss from George. Yes. You gotta spend that two fifty wisely. A kiss on the cheek. So George and Uncle Billy and Jimmy the Raven and all the other people who work at the building and loan successfully keep it open until 6 o'clock that day, despite the threats of Mr. Potter. And George goes home, tired. All he has left from the $2,000 for his honeymoon are $2, which they put in the vault. Yeah, they make a nice show of it. It's kind of fun. They're like, yeah, Yeah. we got to put you in the vault. We'll leave you alone and hope you have some children. Because clearly he does love the building and loan. He really has come to really love it. And this is a moment where you really see how much he does care about the building and loan. He's excited that it still exists, and he's like, we're going to have fun making this thing keep working. Right. And so Ernie picks him up in the cab and says, we're taking you home. And he's like, I don't have a home. And he says, 3200 whatever, the Waldorf Hotel. 320 <laughs> Sycamore, the Waldorf Hotel. And he is like, WTF is happening. Like, there is no Waldorf in Bedford Falls. Yes. And then they pull up. It's the old house. And both Ernie and Bert and some other folks from the neighborhood are, like, outside, like, doing decoration stuff. And they come in. Harry is playing a doorman and tries to get George to tip him. (laughs) And Mary has bought the house with money somehow. Yeah, I guess. And she's set up a beautiful little honeymoon in Bedford Falls. And it's decorated with, like, posters of all the places George wanted to visit. And also, like, she's made dinner. There's a rotisserie chicken being turned by the record player. It's so cute. And they're hugging each other, and Mary goes, this is what I wished for. Aww. And then Mary single-handedly renovates this house. She does a great job. She somehow knows how to replace broken windows. We see her putting up wallpaper. Have you ever put up wallpaper? No, it looks terrible. It's hell. Yeah, and Mary's doing it all on her own. It is truly terrible. I think Mary must be a trained contractor. That's a side plot that I would love to explore. I think George designs the houses for the building and loan, and then Mary does all of the construction. <laughs> yeah, Mary single-handedly builds Bailey Park. Do you think that if you get a house with a swimming pool in Bailey Park, the pool is full of gin? <laughs> I hope so. You turn on your tap and Jim comes out in Bedford Falls. You're driving down the road. You see Bedford Falls coming up. You know it's Bedford Falls because there's a big water tower that says Bedford Falls. Only in Bedford Falls, it's full of gin. It's a gin tower. The Bedford Falls themselves are artificial waterfall of gin. That's how they get that distinct flavor. They pour the gin over a cliff and have it bash into the rocks. Yeah, exactly. So there's just little bits of sand in every bottle. It's called an earthy flavor, Mark. Anyway... So, this takes us to point number four, which is the married life of George and Mary Bailey. Bread, that this house may never know hunger. Salt, that life may always have flavor. And wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever. Enter the Martini Castle. And this is the part of the movie where you get a lot less Mary. Yes, it's mostly George living his life. This is where the World War II stuff comes in. 
Mary's renovating the house. They have four children. In pretty quick succession, it seems. Yes, they do. It's kind of like they have one, and then they have another one, and I feel like there's maybe like a two or three year gap, and then they have two very close together. Yeah. So they have four kids. Their house is finally finished. It's It's in good, pretty good shape. There are still a couple of things that are kind of clunky, most notably the banister. Yes. It drove me crazy because that's such an easy fix. And It feels like one of those things that you see in a sitcom where they're always like, honey, when are you going to get around to that? Like, it was a running joke on the Cosby show that the doorbell never worked. Yeah. And it's also just like, you know what? If this bothers you, George, you could fix it with just a touch of wood glue. Or just get rid of it and be like, we don't need this knob at the bottom of the banister. Yeah. It would be such an easy fix. You put wood glue in the hole and then just... Put it on top. Drove me crazy. Anyway, they're married. They're happy. They're happy, but, like, kind of exhausted together. Yes. In the way that, like, sometimes parents of young children are, like, kind of always exhausted. Yeah, they have four kids. It's just, I feel like they're sleep-deprived. George is running this business that is having some success. Like, we see the two of them together excited when the Martinis get their house in Bailey Park. Like, Mary is right next to him being like, here's the bread, like, may you never go hungry. They're very much a team, but Mary does all the construction work. Yeah, <laughs> but Mary's built every house with her bare hands. <laughs> and that's where things kind of sit until the day that Harry is coming back. And that's point number five. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Yeah, this is where the movie gets very distressing to watch. We are almost at the point where this movie is no longer a flashback. So close. So Harry's coming back, and they're getting ready for the party, and one of the things they have to do is just, like, close up business. So Uncle Billy has to take money from the building and loan and put it in the bank. Right, $8,000. A lot of money. Uncle Billy's at the bank. He runs into Mr. Potter. And Billy is just like, hey, uh, Mr. Potter, I see you're reading a newspaper. Did you notice that my nephew is being decorated by the president? Because as I recall, everyone hates you. (laughs) Basically, that is what he says. Everyone hates you. Everyone loves my family. Fuck you. But here's $8,000. What's interesting is that Mr. Potter knows that everyone hates him and doesn't really care. We see that in the conversation where he offers George a job working at the bank. Which right. happened prior to this. Yeah. Because Mr. Potter doesn't have any family, doesn't spend his money, but is super rich. And so that's why he is in particularly despicable to Bedford Falls. Right. He has no real stake in the community beyond what he can suck out of it. Right. And then is not spending it at all. It's just sitting in a vault and will go presumably nowhere after he dies. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Uncle Billy, when he gives the newspaper to Mr. Potter, he also gives him the envelope with $8,000 in it. Yes. Which is basically all of the building and loans money. Exactly. Also, this is the day the bank examiner came to the building and loan. Right. So, it's not necessarily like all their money, but it is no chump change. It's a ton of money. Remember what we were saying about how much $2,000 is? Yeah. This is four times that. Yeah, so by ending the day with $8,000 short, the bank examiner is like, you're all going to jail. Because you've presumably been stealing money from your clients. So that's a disaster. George and the other bank workers are tearing their hair out trying to find it. They're walking through the street trying to figure out where it is, and they cannot find the money. And it looks like the building and loan is going to go under. And George will be arrested because he runs it and all this money is missing. Mr. Potter calls for the police and puts out a warrant for him. Yeah, because George goes to ask him for money using his life insurance as capital, like as a security. He's realized that he's worth more money dead than alive at this point. And then Mr. Potter's like, bye, I'm calling the cops on you. So George is on the run. He goes home where one of his kids is playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It all comes back together. We're harking. We're harking. And... It is, like, perfect a little kid playing a piano where it's, like, kind of clunky and loud. And it's like, yes, that is the melody, but is it music? Mm, It's definitely not pretty. Yeah. Kids are running around decorating. They're going to be throwing a big Christmas party that night. Some of the younger kids are excited because they'll get to stay up till midnight. Zuzu is sick. Yeah, Zuzu has a cold because she didn't want to crush her flower. So she walked home with her jacket open. And because of that, obviously she got a cold because apparently they don't understand the germ theory of disease. No. So George is... At his wit's end, he's upset that his kid is sick. 
He is upset that the police are after him. He's upset that the building and loan is going to go under. So he verbally abuses his wife, his children, except for Zuzu. And he's like, Mary, why do we have to have so many kids? And as well as their teacher who calls to check in on the sick child. Yeah, he yells at her about how she's a terrible teacher for letting Zuzu walk home with her coat open. Yeah, it's very depressing. And then he runs and gets drunk at Martini's. Yes, he does. After crashing his car into a tree, he goes to the bridge to commit suicide because as he said he's worth more dead than alive right and then a strange man falls into the river and we are now no longer in a flashback yes it is present day george jumps in to save the man also this shows me clearly not the most efficient way to commit suicide because the fall is very survivable yeah i think it matters like how you fall like you'd have to like fling yourself in a way or maybe you land like head first and do damage to your neck yeah but he's like does a proper dive and is okay Right, so he rescues Clarence, and Clarence is very open about the fact that he's an angel. He's like, yeah, I'm an angel, I don't have wings because I'm not very good at it. And this is when George wishes he'd never been born. We get the whole Pottersville sequence where he sees the town without him being born. We learn that Harry, for example, was not able to be a war hero, was not able to be a football star, because he died when he fell in the ice as a small child. George wasn't there to save him. We learn Mary's spinsterhood has degenerated her eyesight, and she runs the library. Not the worst way to turn out. I know, I was just like, they're making this sound like a death sentence, and she seems like a happy, independent woman with a job running the library. She is still Donna Reed, so she is Donna Reed, single, running a library, and kind of working for me. Yeah. But we get the sense that Mary herself is, like, kind of sad, doesn't really feel like she fits into the world. Pottersville seems like a harsh town. Yes. It seems like a town that does not have the, the welcoming or the care for people that Bedford Falls did. And we know that Bedford Falls could sometimes be kind of uncomfortable. We saw the way people laughed at George when he talked to Violet about running up to the mountain. But nonetheless, there was a community spirit in Bedford Falls that we don't see in Pottersville. Yeah, because it's all nightclubs and strip shows and Violet's drunk and getting thrown out of a bar. I read an essay about this movie that I'm regretting that I can't remember the name that was arguing that in part one of the horrific things that happens in It's Wonderful Life is that George has a particular vision of what Bedford Falls is, and he sees it in a way as himself, a community that sacrifices for one another. And in the Pottersville sequence, he not only sees Bedford Falls without him there, but he also on some level has to realize that this aspect of the town does exist in the world where he does live. And so even when he comes back from his experience, he still comes back with that knowledge. That they are on the knife's edge. It doesn't take much. Took one man to turn Bedford Falls to Pottersville. Yeah. And a hellhole. And he's horrified by all of this, and he eventually learns his lesson that his life was worth something. And Clarence restores him to life. Yes, he goes back to the bridge, and he's being chased by the cops in Pottersville. For harassing people. Yeah, because he is and deserves to be arrested. He took Mary and shaked her a bunch. <laughs> yeah. Bert shows up and he's like, go ahead and try to arrest me. I'll hit you again. And Bert's like, what is? what are you talking about? I'm here to bring you home because I love you, George. And they go home and we know that when he ran out, Mary was really worried about him and was calling people to check on him. She told the kids to pray for him. Like, daddy needs your help. Billy told her what's happening, so she tells everyone in the town, and they all band together. He gets home, and he sees Mary, and he's so happy to see her and his kids. On his way home, this is where you get, Merry Christmas, you old building alone! Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls! And he gets home, and as you said, the whole town has come out to help him. Just like he gave what money he could to help them when the building and loan was closing, they have now come to give what money they can to keep it open. This is where I cry a little. Yeah. And a bell rings because Clarence gets his wings. And even the bank examiner gives money into the pool. Yeah. And just like kind of shrugs. <laughs> he shrugs and then just starts singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing with everyone else. No man is poor who has friends. And George and Mary live happily ever after, I'm assuming. It was a good movie. It is. It's a great movie. I love this movie so much. So, Will, after watching this whole saga unfold, do you find the core romance between George Bailey and Mary Hatch believable? So you texted me this morning saying that you think no movie from the 40s will ever get a 10. Nope. I don't believe that an angry shake will lead to a kiss ever, and that is at least a full point off, in my opinion. I tend to agree with you. Yes. The fact that the scene right before they get married is him harassing her and being a total dick. That whole scene is problematic for the believability part. Yes. I love the night that they're in the swimming pool and like they're throwing rocks through the window and buffalo gals. Yeah. Lasso the moon. And he says, 
like when she says the I'll love you forever into his ear, it's very sweet as a little girl. So there is definitely core believability and they are happy for the most part. And his breakdown is only one day, so it makes sense that she would forgive him. Right, we don't get the sense that this is like a pattern of abuse. No. So I think that for the most part it is. So every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale where 0 is totally unbelievable and 10 is totally believable. Where would you put It's a Wonderful Life? I would probably go like an 8 or a 9. That's kind of where I'm feeling. I think it's maybe an 8. Yeah. I think there's enough weird stuff going on. We do have the whole thing where he holds her bathrobe and traps her naked in a bush. Yeah, that's bad too. So let's maybe put it at an 8. Yeah, that sounds good. Do you think that either of them are dateable? Yes, especially Mary, who rules. She is a construction (laughs) wizard. She has the skills to become a librarian. She is an artist we see in her cartoon of George lassoing the moon. Like, what's not to like about Mary? Yeah, Mary is a renaissance woman. She's terrific. Uh, George is a good guy, and I think George is dateable, too. Me, too. Do you think they'll stay together? Yeah, I do. Yeah, of course. They've got a good relationship. It's the 40s. No one gets divorced. I know. I think they do have a good relationship. Yeah, I do, too. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, I did say person, so you can't say Jimmy the Raven. Who would it be? Uh, Violet and I would move to the big city and live large for the rest of our lives. That's what would happen. I think my answer probably is Mary. I like her a lot. I feel like she could teach me a lot about construction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she could teach you all the handy skills you need. But she also, like, knows what she wants and is willing to go and get it. And I also like her commitment to sort of elaborate moments, like how she sets up the honeymoon with the fake hotel, which she probably spends the whole day putting together while George is at the building alone. But also, like putting on buffalo gals when George is coming over. I never have the impression that Mary thinks those moments make a relationship, but she gets joy out of making some of those moments happen to be something special. Definitely. She did buy a house without telling George. That's true. Which is a little problematic. It all worked out. It did work out in the end, but she did just (laughs) buy a house. Okay, now, many of the movies that we have discussed on this show have been turned into stage musicals. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that It's a Wonderful Life should be made into a stage musical? I would be shocked if it hasn't already. Of course it has been. In 1986, It's a Wonderful Life debuted professionally at a theater in Warsaw, Indiana, after previously premiering at the University of Michigan. It was written by Sheldon Harnick and Joe Raposo. Harnick wrote a bunch of musicals. Raposo was actually a Sesame Street guy. It has never appeared on Broadway, but the Schubert Theater did a concert version in 2005. Yeah, if it was in the public domain, of course it was going to be made into a musical. Yeah, that's how things work. Yeah, I think that about does it for It's a Wonderful Life. It's a wonderful movie. You know, it is. Next week, we'll have a less wonderful movie because hashtag Fifi Fierce is returning for another wacko made-for-TV movie. This week, it is The Night Before Christmas. That's night spelled with a K, of course, because it is a pun, and it is about a medieval knight being transported to the 21st century to fall in love with Vanessa Hudgens Um, at Christmas. Of course it is. This one sounds extremely painful. I will hopefully get friends to watch them with me. You know, no man is poor who has friends. So true. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Those really help us to rise in the rankings, and that keeps Tony A. Anthony sending us those briefcases full of money. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Sing American folk songs. That works really well for George and Mary coming home from the swimming pool. And if it is a thing that works, then I am in very good shape. I'd say take an impromptu swim. It seems to work in a lot of movies. Oh, that's true. There you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye now. Bye. As I was walking down the street, down the street, down the street, a pretty little girl I chanced to meet and we danced by the light of the moon. Buffalo gal, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight, come out tonight. Buffalo gal, won't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon?